You're watching episode four, series two of Battleground on ADH-TV, the home of intelligent debate and a bastion of civility in an era of uncivil civil debate. I'm Nick Cater, senior fellow at the Menzies Research Centre and a writer with The Australian. This show streams on Thursday evenings on ADH-TV at eight, eight o'clock, or you can catch up anytime you like on the ADH app, downloadable for free from your smart TV or smartphone from your favourite app store. Later, I'll be joined from London by Brendan O'Neill, the political writer for Spiked, to discuss the violence and intimidation of progressive activists and uh, what the no campaign in the Australian voice referendum can learn from the Brexit saga in the UK. But first, we're victory in the fight for common sense in the energy debate. Lately, we've been highlighting the environmental damage that's being wrought in Australia right now in the name of clean, green energy. We brought you footage from behind the construction fence in Yass Valley, where massive wind turbine development 35 kilometres long is ripping the heart out of farmland and native scrub. It's a similar picture in renewable energy zones from Tasmania to far north Queensland. And the federal government, as the federal government pushes ahead with its plan to install 40 wind turbines a month and 22,000 solar panels a day in pursuit of its 2030 low carbon energy goal. Well, at last we're seeing some resistance, not from the government, sadly, but from the private sector. Last year, Andrew Forrest's Squadron Energy struck a deal with Apple to sell carbon credits from a massive 400 megawatt 80 turbine wind plant that was proposed for Upper Burdekin in far north Queensland. The development threatened hundreds of hectares of native forests and scrub. The environmental report said that it would involve the removal of 662 hectares, it's about six square kilometres, of Shaman's Rock Wallaby habitat, 746 hectares of koala habitat, and 709 hectares of greater glider habitat, 754 hectares of red goshawk habitat, and potential nesting. And um, when the local community began to draw attention to this, uh, this disaster that was happening on their doorstep, Apple had second thoughts. This week, the news broke that Apple had pulled out of the deal altogether. Well, although the company hasn't given a reason, it's clear the campaign against the environmental damage was getting too hot. Stephen Nowakowski is a brilliant wildlife photographer based in Queensland who's helped lead the campaign against the Upper Burdekin and other wind farms. Stephen joins me now from far north Queensland. Yes. Stephen, you haven't won the war yet, yes. but you certainly won a big battle. Yeah, in these sort of campaigns, we've got to take every little victory as it comes, and we're, we're surely celebrating the fact that Apple have, has walked away from this project. Um, uh, we congratulate Apple for walking away from this project. Um, it wasn't; a, it's not a really good project for Apple to to be involved in in terms of um, of the collateral damage to endangered species. And uh, we'd like to recommend, you know, we recommend that other companies uh, do not follow the lead of Apple and, and pursue or get involved with the Upper Burdekin Wind Farm project. It's an inappropriately placed wind farm project in some very, very good, high biodiverse wilderness um, uh, forests. And it's a place that was actually earmarked for national park acquisition because of its high biodiversity values. So we um, congratulate Apple. It was a good decision. 
and uh, and we'd actually like to see Twiggy Forest now walk away from this project. Uh, it's it's a project that is going to call or bring about a lot of harm to his reputation and Squadron Energy if they do proceed. So we'd like to see Squadron Energy and Twiggy Forest walk away from this project. Well, you've uh, you've done a brilliant job highlighting this with your wildlife photography and, and videotography. Uh, we'll run some images now of Caban mm. Wind Farm. This is 145 mm. kilometres from the Upper Burdigan proposal, but uh, you can see the kind of uh, landscape that it is. I mean, this is basically what, uh, remnant mm. native forest, I guess, is it, Stephen? That's right, yeah. So it's all old growth forests on the western side of the wet tropics world heritage area. So it's high elevation forests, and these are the forests that have been spared um, industrialisation, um, uh, agriculture, commercialisation, urbanisation, because of its rugged terrain. So what's happening is these wind farm companies are targeting the remnant areas, the high altitude areas, the refugia areas of North Queensland, where there is a bit of a wind resource, even though that's a little bit debatable. Um, and in doing so, um, diminishing those wilderness values of those high, high altitude areas. And those high altitude areas are the areas that we need um, uh, for species to survive. They're the, the refugia areas. Mm. Um, yeah, so they're the, they're the areas being targeted by the by big wind, wind companies at the moment. The reason why they're getting a free kick into these otherwise um, otherwise protected areas under the Vegetation Management Act is that under the State Planning Code 23 for wind farms, wind farms are actually exempt from the Vegetation Management Act and also the Nature Conservation Act. Mm. So the wind farm industry is the only industry in Queensland that is exempt from the Vegetation Management Act and the Nature Conservation Act. And this is why they, they, they have the ability to go into these areas and um, and uh, clear fell hundreds of hectares of, of forest that wouldn't normally be cleared under any other circumstance. Mm. So even if it was a coal mine or coal seam gas, they'd find it very hard to clear these types of forests in Queensland. But the wind farm industry have got a free kick. They're exempt from the Vegetation Management Act and the Nature Conservation Act. Um, so that's why these projects are getting, getting the go-ahead. They're being mm. fast-tracked. In actual fact, the state government is quoted as saying that there's a streamlined process for the wind farm industry in Queensland, which is code for free-for-all. And I'd go, I'd go as far as to say this is a bit of a cowboy industry. Um, it isn't regulated. There is no compliance. We've had residents now complaining against the Caban wind farm in terms of noise and water sediment runoff into the local creeks. And no one is responsible for the damage wrought by that project. Um, uh, there's just the, the state government flicks it over to the federal government. The federal government says it's not their responsibility. It's the local council. The council says it's not their responsibility. So there's actually no compliance or regulations in place at all for the wind, wind industry in, in Queensland. Mm. Um, yeah. Stephen, people might watch this and they'll say, oh, that Nick Cater, we've read what he writes in The Australian, he's not, he's not exactly a, a fan of renewable energy yeah. or he's, he's not terribly energised over, over climate change. Uh, but, but you, I mean, I don't, they can't say that about you. I mean, you, you, you've been a long-time uh, environmentalist, uh, supporter of nat native wildlife, 
uh, and indeed yeah. uh, for the need to take action against climate change, right? Tell me about your, your journey, as it will, from somebody who was in that position to somebody now who is uh, trying to, yeah. uh, to yeah. stop these inappropriate wind developments. Well, that's right. So my history is that I've, I've actually run for the Greens Party twice, for the seat of Leichhardt and the seat of Cairns. Um, I'm a member of the Greens. Um, I, you know, I've, I've been involved in many, uh, many campaigns. I've actually even been arrested three times <laughs> for, for trying to save forests in our local area. Um, I'm, and... Uh, um, and I don't regret those at all. Um, all of those campaigns, we've we've made a, a difference to the outcome. But what I'm seeing here with the wind farm industry far exceeds any other campaign that I've been involved in in my life. So, for example, there are 77 large-scale renewable projects earmarked for Queensland, and our mapping shows that 17,000 hectares of old-growth native forests in high altitude areas, high biodiverse areas are earmarked to be cleared for the rapid rollout of renewables. And that's just unfathomable. You can't go clearing the best of the best of our forests, of our remnant forests for climate action. It's a, it's a complete oxymoron. It doesn't mm. make sense. There is no plan for the rollout of renewables in this state. There's no plan. Mick Brenny, the state minister, put out an announcement today saying that Queensland is on track to being a, a global superpower um, for hydrogen and um, for renewable energy. But when you look at the facts, that's completely un, un, unattainable. It can't be done without clearing vast amounts of country. There's not enough minerals in Mother Earth to actually to achieve those outcomes. To, uh, mm. So it's um, it doesn't make any sense. Well, no, particularly, um, particularly when we, we have other, other sources of clean energy available to us. Nuclear, for instance, in Canada, in, in the state of Ontario, yeah. at Darlington, uh, they, are, they mm. are just about to start the construction of a small modular reactor. Now, let's compare this small modular reactor and what mm. it will do with what the Upper mm. Burdigan wind uh, development will do if it goes ahead. Darlington's yes, yeah. SMR will de develop 300 megawatts of dispatchable energy. That's energy all the time. It'll actually be yeah. providing energy yeah. for about 90% mm. of the time. Uh, so that's around 2,700 gigawatts a year. Upper mm. Burdekin, on the other hand, will have a capacity of 400 megawatts. So on its nameplate, yeah. it's bigger than uh, the small mm. modular reactor. But it'll only produce a thousand gigawatts a year because it's only operative about 25% of the time. Mm. Now, here's the amazing thing to me: that the wind farm has a footprint of almost 10 square kilometres. The mm. SMR, meanwhile, 25 hectares. So, in other words, yeah. for the same amount of energy or less energy, the wind turbines will take up 40 times the space of the SMRs. And not only that, but of course the SMR small modular reactor will be built on an existing uh, power plant within a existing power plant site. So it's a brownfield <coughs> site. There's no relatively little, if any, environmental issues there as compared to what you've got up there, which is a massive uh, 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 intrusion on native bushland and 750 <coughs> hectares or thereabouts hectares. koala land. I mean, it's just... 
That's as you say, it's unfathomable. They must have got really desperate to get to this point, Stephen. Well, the Upper Burdekin is only one of six. So we've got the Upper Burdekin wind farm site, the Shalumban, Caban, Mount Emerald and Mount Fox Energy Park. So there's going to be a continuous strip of, of around two to 300 kilometres of wind turbines hard up against the western side of the wet tropics ward heritage area. Um, going back to other alternatives for net zero, I've also come to the conclusion that nuclear will have to be a part of the energy mix. And I was very opposed to nuclear back in, you know, up until about a year ago. And what I, what I did was put my ideology aside and look at the facts on the table. And the facts have proven to me that, renew, that nuclear is really a very good solution, for, particularly for Queensland. And the reason being is because Queensland is not blessed with the wind resources that other states have. So the Northern Territory and Queensland don't have wind. And I've visited uh, the Boomer Range wind farm, the Clark Creek wind farm, the Lotus Creek wind farm. I was on the road for 10 days, no wind. I've been monitoring out the local wind farm near me, Mount Emerald, religiously every single day. And for the last seven days, um, uh, the last seven days, it has only generated 1.9%. Well, the four, we've got four wind farms in Queensland, Coopers, Hewenden, Mount Emerald and Caban. Those four wind farms only generated 1.9% of the energy consumption for Queensland in the last seven days. Uh. We're having a wind drought up here. It's not windy. There's no wind. Uh, so we, yeah. so there's $2 billion worth of infrastructure in wind farms in Queensland that is currently being built, is operational, and it's only contributed 1.9% of the electricity to this state. So if you correlate that out statewide, we're going to need around 200 to 300 wind farms that may provide power for 50% of the time when the wind blows. Um, and... This just does my head in. I, so Mount Emerald Wind Farm is only generating 18% output capacity at the, for, for 2022. So for the year 2022, Mount Emerald Wind Farm only generated 18% of median output. Whereas we get the wind farm proponents saying that wind farms, onshore wind farms generate 30 to 35% output. Mm. So I was generous. Uh, and when it's I not said, happening. When I said 25%, I, I was generous. You're right. It does yeah. our heads in, Stephen, that we should be heading yeah. down this path when there are other alternatives. Look, yes. uh, since I started covering this issue uh, in print and here on ADH, mm. I've had so many phone calls, emails, texts from people up and down the country, communities threatened by either wind or solar, at the most part, some transmission lines, each one face fighting their own lonely battle against big energy, big energy with all their resources and, and their PR teams and everything else they've yes, got. Yes. And these are just ordinary yes. people, right? You've met them. You've met them in Queensland. You've That's met them right. elsewhere. Yes. They're just battling yes, yes. people, trying to save that little patch of Australia, which is their own, trying to save <coughs> farmland, mm. trying to save native wildlife mm. habitats. Can we offer them some some encouragement that they're not fighting in vain that if you if you are determined enough you can win the case and defeat big energy 
<clears throat> well, we've just seen it here. So it can be done. Um, you know, Apple, a very big global brand, have walked away from the Upper Burdekin project because of its unacceptable uh, impacts on wildlife. The same can be said for other areas of Australia with unacceptable impacts in terms of high value agricultural land. Um, transmission lines is a really big issue in Australia. Um, you know, the Federal Minister for Energy is saying that we need 20,000 kilometres of new transmission lines in Australia. That's going to have a really big impact on people's livelihoods, high value agricultural areas and, and forests, state forests and national parks. So it, it can be done. We, um, the people out there who are fighting uh, for their little patch of, um, of, of area um, against big wind, they can, they can win. Just got to stay, you got to stay, um, <laughs> stay focused and, uh, and fight hard. And I think what we really need to do at a, at a national level is actually join forces and we need to combine all of our resources so all of these isolated communities don't feel isolated because um, they're, they're, more often than not, we are very isolated in these big, big battles. It's very much a, a David versus Goliath mm. uh, battle mm. against these big multinational energy companies. And what I like to see is um, some sort of national body that can that can... Um, get all these groups and residents and communities together and we can fight um, as a joint force rather than just sporadically across the nation. Yeah, yeah that's so, what we need. That's yeah. what we need. Stephen, thank that's you for right. everything you've done up there. Uh, and I would recommend your website. You can give it a plug in a minute. It's, got, right. uh, it's got plenty more videos like that one you've just seen that are both inspiring in terms of the natural landscapes. They, they, they show Stephen's done a great job with the photography. Uh, but also the underlying tragedy of what's happening in those parts. Mm. So, thanks, Stephen. Just plug your website before we go. No worries. <laughs> right here. No, it's no worries. It's yeah, Stephen Nowakowski uh, com. Just yeah, <laughs> check it out. There's a yeah. There's um yeah. I, I produce calendars, diaries, books, and so forth. So yeah, have a look. Check it out. So thank you, thank you, Nick. Yeah. No, thanks. <laughs> Great to have you on. I'm sure we'll talk again. Thanks for that. Right here. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. Thank you, Ta. Thank you. And now it's my great pleasure to welcome to the show Brendan O'Neill. Brendan is the chief political reporter for, chief political writer, I should say, for Spiked Online. And he's the presenter of the enormously popular Brendan O'Neill Show podcast, which is uh, one of my must-listen-to podcasts every week. And Brendan, you, you're about to publish a new book, uh, Heretics Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. You're publishing it in Britain, and we might have some exciting news about an Australian uh, uh, publication of it shortly, but congratulations. What's the book cover, by the way? The book is, yes, yeah, so as you say, it's called The Heretics Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. I'm particularly proud of the subheading. I thought that was a real stroke of genius on my part. I like the way those words hang together. It's, ba it's 10 original essays on the theme of heresy and the things we're not allowed to say in the 21st century. So the first essay is called Her Penis, and it looks at the issue of transgenderism and the way it's impacting on how we think, how we speak, how people behave. And then I run through the climate change witch hunt, um, the COVID lockdown situation and what that was all about. The new, I, the new way in which we view racism as a kind of uh, inbred, continual problem of human society that will never be fixed. 
uh, right through to uh, the idea that words hurt people, that freedom of speech is a dangerous thing. So I really cover 10 different big ideas of our time that we're not supposed to have free floating discussions about. And I say, look, on all these issues, we need more heretical thinking, we need more dissent, we need more controversy. And, and that's really the case I put in the book. Mm. Well, let's start with that transgender issue, transgender rights, so-called, because this comes to your most recent podcast, which is when I listened to it, that was the reason I thought I'll email you and get you on, because it was a very disturbing conversation, I thought, with Kelly J. Keane or Posey Parker, the uh, woman who's really a, a conducting a brave fight for women's right to speak, essentially. It's nothing more than that. And we would know she was in Australia recently and New Zealand and uh, the behaviour of the transgender crowd was just appalling, violent, uh, threatening. Tell me, we, we should send people to listen to your podcast with her to hear just how Friday it was. But she, she genuinely felt her life was at risk, didn't she, when she was up there in Auckland and the, the crowd broke through without any police in sight. Absolutely. She really did. And um, I should say, I've been friends with Kelly J. Keane for a few years now. I have a lot of admiration for her. I think the the depiction of her as a far-right Nazi anti-trans lunatic is so completely wrong. Anyone who knows her or who has spoken to her knows that that is completely wrong. She is a woman who believes in women's rights, who believes that women need their own spaces in certain situations, and who particularly believes that we women should have the right to speak about themselves and their bodies and their needs without being called transphobic or bigoted and so on. So I think she's right on all of that. And she did genuinely fear for her life when she was in Auckland. And anyone who's seen that footage will have just been deeply disturbed by it. I wrote a piece for The Spectator here just saying that this is what it must have been like when women were marched to the stake 500 years ago. You know, there would have been baying mobs screaming at them and calling them the devil and shouting expletives in their face, throwing things at them. That's what happened to Kelly J. Keene in, in Auckland. She, it was like a witch being marched away, but mercifully, she was marched into a police car rather than to the stake. It was really disturbing. The thing that worries me most, and this does touch on Australia as well as New Zealand, is that I think the that mob situation was actually, the, the, the conditions for it were set by a lot of mainstream Australian journalists, a lot of mainstream Australian politicians who went along with the idea that this woman was a Nazi, this woman is basically the scum of the earth. Um, one of the Greens in um, the parliament in Hobart referred to her as a turd. He said, we shouldn't call them turfs, which means trans-exclusionary radical feminist. We should call them turds, which means trans-exclusionary right-wing dropkicks. That was Nick McKim of the Greens who said that. And of course, the reason he chose the acronym turds is because it sounds like feces. It sounds like excrement. Mm. He was basically saying this woman is, is excrement. And there was a lot of that going on. There was a lot of that demonization of her by people who should know better, which means by the time she got to Auckland, people thought, God, we have to deal with this Nazi. She's a real danger. She's the most horrible woman uh, in the Southern Hemisphere right now. And so the, the, the mob was whipped up by mainstream actors and mainstream voices. And that's the part of this that actually worries me the most. And the, yeah, I think you're right. And, and 
And Kelly J. Keane was very, uh, very critical of the Australian media, with the exception, I think she singled out The Australian, the paper I write for, and Sky News uh, as exceptions, and, and she's right in that. But it was, um, the New Zealand coverage was really got to me. There were reporters covering, young reporters covering this violence at this rally, and yet they appeared to be taking the side of the, the violent protesters. It, it, it's, it's extraordinary, isn't it? In any other circumstance, violence against women of that nature or, or shutting women down, you know, I mean, if you and I were at a, at a, at a meeting and we told the women to shut, down, shut up, you know, we, we'd be put in our place. That would be extremely, un, totally unacceptable behaviour. And yet somehow we get this, I call it dirty Harry syndrome sets in, doesn't it? You know, because they see themselves as fighting for the good, then anything goes. That's right. And uh, I've referred to it as misogyny in drag because I do think that a lot of trans activism, this is not a reference to trans people, by the way. Most trans people just want to have a normal life and to live freely and happily. That They're not necessarily part of the trans lobby. But when it comes to the trans lobby, the noisy, often very intolerant movement that wants extra special rights and which has a particular contempt for women who don't accept the idea that men can become women. When we're talking about that lobby, they are quite misogynistic. That's becoming quite clear now. And we, we did see that in Auckland. We did see it with the way in which Kelly J. Keane was talked about, the way she was depicted. There was one cartoon in the New Zealand Herald which showed her as a very small woman. And as she said to me, it made her look older than she actually looks. It made her look more overweight. And it had this, the cartoon had this huge male hand pointing down at her like the hand of God saying, we don't want your turf propaganda in this country. Basically, it was a massive male hand telling a little woman to shut up. I mean, that's what it was. And it, if you imagine a right wing newspaper did that or if an old white liberal politician in Australia were to say something like that, there would be outrage, rightly so. I thought we'd moved into a modern era in which women could speak as, as freely as men can. But, you know, there was another incident in Australia last week, I think, which I found incredibly disturbing. On Q&A, there was a non-binary activist. Um, I can't rem remember his name or their name, as, as I'm supposed to say. And he was talking about Moira Deeming, who has been uh, suspended from the Liberal Party for, for going to one of Posey Parker's uh, meetings. And he said something like, you know, she, he said she shouldn't have been there at all. And then he said, just stay at home, doll. Oh. And I was watching this and I was it's really horrified it? by it. It is I was, disgraceful. I mean, it was really awful, just awful. And imagine if on Q&A, imagine there was a 65-year-old liberal politician on the right who said to a left-wing woman or a liberal, uh, a small L liberal woman, imagine he said, stay in the kitchen, darling. There would be, it would be on the front page of the papers, it would be talked about for weeks on end. It would be held up as symptomatic of the misogynistic rot in the Liberal Party. But this non-binary activist can say to Moira Demon, stay at home, doll. Such a disgusting, sexist uh, slogan to come out with against this woman, who has good reason, actually, to, to want to protect women's spaces and women's rights. Um, and, and yet it doesn't mm. cause much fuss at all. And in fact, he got a round of applause from the audience at q and I thought that was really, really telling. And it really did demonstrate that misogyny is making a comeback under the guise of trans activism. 
And it is very intolerant. It's very illiberal. And it's particularly um, opposed to freedom of speech, the right of women and men, in fact, to stand in a public place and to express what they consider to be biological truths, uh, sexual reality, the importance of women's spaces. It's really uh, unforgivingly intolerant of people's right to express those ideas. And I think we really have to push back against that. And we've got to find a stronger word than hypocrisy to describe their behaviour, haven't we? But another example of this, uh, of this uh, hypocrisy on, on the left, we've just featured it earlier in this show, is when it comes to wind farms and, uh, or wind industrial estates, as, as they, they should be properly called, and great solar developments that are taking place in Australia now on a large scale. Now, the case we highlighted today was up in the Upper Burdekin, which is a beautiful place in far north Queensland, native forest, native, native scrub and native forest, where in order to elect, erect a, a wind, uh, 80 wind turbines, they are going to bulldoze 750 hectares, that's about seven square kilometres in the old money, 750 hectares of native koala habitat. Now, Fortunately, Apple was going to buy the carbon credits from this. They've seen the light and they've pulled out. But can you believe it? I mean, it, it, once again, it, it's this utter double standards because they think that they're saving the planet or some such, it's okay to bulldoze the koala habitat. I mean, how do they get to this point, Brendan? What's going on in their heads? <laughs> It really is extraordinary. And they're so unaware of the double standard or, or they're aware of it and don't care, That which might be even more shocking. But yeah, we see this all the time. We see, you know, for example, in the UK, um, the green movement here is absolutely anti-coal. They will um, campaign to prevent the building of a new coal power station, which the Tory government here has just given the go-ahead to. They want to prevent that station from being built, even though it will create 500 really well-paid jobs for working-class people in in that part of the country, and lots of other jobs as well in the uh, surrounding businesses that will spring up. It's a really great thing, the coal power station that's being proposed, but Greens are opposed to it. But at the same time, they completely turn a blind eye to the fact that Britain has to import coal because we simply don't have enough. And because our wind farms are obviously insufficient for keeping the electricity, the, uh, the system going, and we don't have enough nuclear power because Greens have opposed the creation of nuclear power for a long time and governments haven't been very in favour of it either. So we're importing coal, which they just don't talk about. And there's this, they seem to have this view that as long as they keep their hands clean, as long as they keep our country virtuous and coal free, then it doesn't matter if somewhere in South Africa or China or Australia, people are still digging coal and sending it around the world. There's a real blindness to the reality of life and to the double standards that they themselves exercise. So it, it, it doesn't surprise me that you have that wind farm story there where they're going to strip down loads of land, but it's okay because it's for their virtuous project as they see it, which is wind rather than fossil fuels. I think um, it really does speak, to, and, and this comes back to the transgender question as well, it, it speaks to this new climate amongst the woke set or whatever we want to call them, where they are so convinced of their righteousness that they become completely blind to their 
hypocrisies, uh, the, the problematic ideas they're pushing, their intolerance, their violence sometimes. They're so convinced that they are right and proper on every issue that they are unaware or, or simply don't care that they are having a destructive impact on society with the ideas that they are pushing. And I think we're seeing more and more of that. This... Um, idea of perfect moral rage that they have, which means they can do pretty much anything they want. And it's that in particular, I think, that we need to push back on. And you've, you've done a great job of highlighting this shift on the left from an, uh, a movement that was largely concerned with economic justice, with social class and, and, and uh, equal opportunities and, and a fair deal for everybody, regardless of economic class or circumstances. They've shifted away from that, haven't they? Now they have other concerns altogether. And, and energy is a perfect illustration. The kind of policies that they're advocating is pushing up the price of electricity. Uh, in Britain now, I believe it's even twice as expensive as it is in Australia, and it's, it's bad enough here, which, of course, hits the elderly and the poor worst. Like, generally, you're your, your heating costs don't vary that much from a, a poor person's house to a big person's house. But, you know, that's a big chunk out of your, your, your disposable income, isn't it, if you're poor? What, what, what are the consequences of that in Britain right now? Uh, the, the consequences are huge and it's not improving. Over the past few months, there's been government assistance um, for every person in the country. We've been getting £67 a month or something um, for the past five or six months to help with uh, um, electricity bills. In fact, I got my most recent one this morning. Everyone in the country is getting that. Um, and older people are getting a little bit more assistance as well. But it, it doesn't cover the extraordinary hike in um, gas and electricity bills that people are going through. Energy, the, the, the cost of energy is going through the roof. And everyone says it's down to the Ukraine crisis or the post-lockdown situation. Now, both of those things are contributing to this problem. Both of, uh, you know, the, the Russia-Ukraine thing is a problem and the... Um, Lockdown, in my view, was a terrible error in terms of the long-term economic consequences that it will have for our societies. So that's true. But there's a much more long-term problem here, which is that Western governments have been against the creation of abundant cheap energy for a long time because they think it is um, unclean and dangerous and will not stand there, it will not uh, boost their eco credentials. So, if you have a country which has not invested meaningfully in energy production, then there will come a breaking point. And that's mm. what we're witnessing now. So, environmentalists and government who have gone along with environmentalists have a lot to answer for in relation to this crisis. And I think the in relation to the the, the left or the chattering classes, I, I sometimes struggle to know how to describe this movement in society that wields an extraordinary amount of power. Matthew Goodwin has a new book out about the new elites, and there's a big controversy here at the moment where everyone's saying, how can you call them the new elites? They're just woke people who want a better life. So it can be quite difficult to define this new elite, but I think it's yeah. important to try. And one of the things that, uh, as you say there, they have turned against ideas of economic equality and economic justice and 
um, a better economic deal for ordinary people, which is what the left devoted itself to for decades, into more cultural, the more cultural sphere. The idea of really pushing new cultural ideas, uh, new agendas, new ideologies, the trans idea, new views of race, new new mechanisms for controlling ordinary people and how they think and how they behave. They've really shifted onto that territory. I used to refer to them as post-class, the post-class left, and I, I still do sometimes. But I actually think it's a bit more complicated than that. I think they are still pursuing class interests, but they're pursuing the class interests of their own class rather than the working class, of that, you know, the new graduate elites who wield such extraordinary influence over cultural ideals and, and new ideologies and the political sphere and the media. I think there's a new class emerging, which is very powerful, and they're pursuing those class interests to the neglect, the open neglect of the class interests of the masses in society. And I think that's a very interesting development in all Western countries, really. Yeah, I think undoubtedly they are a class in that they do pursue common interests. They may not be as obvious as the ones of an earlier generation, but they're there, right? So we have a phenomenon over here. You, 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 you follow Australian politics quite closely. You'll know of the, the Teal members that were elected to Parliament at the last election, and this was supposed to be community speaking out, uprising against you know the dishonesty in politics, the treatment of women, Oh, and climate change. Well, it turns out that when the funding is disclosed for this this teal movement, this climate climate um, one hundred or whatever they climate two hundred, sorry, it, it turns out <laughs> that their money, almost all their money, comes from people with an interest in renewable energy, by which I mean wind, solar batteries, not nuclear. Now. We get to a point where we say, well, maybe a bit of nuclear would be nice. I mean, that is, after all, carbon-free and it's efficient and Britain's using it quite successfully and Canada's putting new stuff in. Oh, no. Oh, no, we can't do that. We can't do that. No, we can't because, you know, we need the real deal, which is wind and solar. This, to me, is just that they have no clothes on. They are the emperor with no clothes. They, they claim they put all this forward because they're saving the planet, but it turns out they're doing exactly as you say. They're, they're just standing up for their own particular pecuniary interests, and they should say so, don't you think? Absolutely. And I, I find the green opposition to nuclear power to be so interesting and really worth thinking about because nuclear power is so obviously the way for humankind to go. It is a clean energy. You can create an extraordinary amount of energy with very few res resources in terms of the uranium. Um, it's easy to dump. It's easy to store once it's used. All, all the idea of nuclear waste being a terrible threat to the world is not true. That's a quite a straightforward process. Um, but Greens really oppose it, even though it would be much better than using coal and, and um, gas and other fossil fuels that, that have a certain expiration date on them. Um, and you're right, they, they oppose nuclear power for a, a number of reasons. Firstly, because they are very often supported very generously by sections of the wind and solar industry who have a vested interest in demonizing nuclear power as well as demonizing fossil fuels. Um, but of course, that never gets talked about. You know, the, these environmentalist activists will always say, 
all climate change skeptics are funded by the fossil fuel industry, even where it's not necessarily true. And therefore, they're suspicious and they wish they should be treated with uh, disdain and they should not be listened to. But of course, the true is same of many of them. They are funded by big corporations with a vested interest in certain ideas getting into the public realm. So that, again, there's that double standard over who is allowed to be funded and who isn't. But I think their opposition to nuclear also tells a bigger story, which is that they talk about saving the planet, but really they're just opposed to humankind's presence on the planet. It really is the creation of energy in order that there could be more people enjoying wealthier, more comfortable lives and that, you know, the, the developing world might go through the same process that we in the developed world were lucky enough to go through 150, 200 years ago, where we industrialized and became incredibly modern. They're against all of that fundamentally. They're against what they refer to as the human footprint. The human footprint is this idea that humanity has left this horrible stain on the planet. We've stood on the planet and left these, these pock marks everywhere. We're a plague, we're a disaster, we're a disease and all that kind of stuff. So fundamentally what drives them is an ideological moralistic opposition to human endeavor and human industry and what they view as human hubris. And they dress that, that up in all their fancy language and they say, we want to save mother earth and make a cleaner environment. But it's actually our the modern society that we have created that they are opposed to. So there are a number of reasons why they are obsessed with wind and solar. Uh, it's because they're often funded to be obsessed with it. It's also because they really do want to wind back the modern era and have fewer people doing fewer things and using less energy. And they have that vision of a very small human presence on the planet, which I find very depressing and actually quite misanthropic. Uh, talking of woke obsessions, woke obsessions. You mentioned um, race earlier. That that's become a big one. Right? Black Lives Matter, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, it seems to me what we have now is a new form of anti-racism, anti-racism 2.0, if you like. Uh, you know, the anti-racism. We didn't call it that. We just called it not. You know, not not being prejudiced towards people uh, that you and I were brought up on. You know, we were taught that essentially the idea of colour blindness, that, that the colour of your skin was the least important thing about you. Uh, the character of your your character was far more important. And that's now been turned on its head and colour is most important, more important than anything. Recently, Stan Grant, uh, the host of that show you mentioned, Q&A, uh, and somebody of Aboriginal descent, complained that uh, an ABC panel for the New South Wales election was all white. And this was a terrible thing. They were all white, apart from Jeremy Fernandez, but he'd been given a, a cameo role, according to, according to the complainant in this matter. So I, I found that to be the crudest and most offensive type of racism you could have. It's, it's the colour of your skin. You are white, you are black, that's how we're going to look at you. And yet, this is the thinking now, isn't it? 
it is for thinking now, you know, and it's incredibly worrying. I think it's actually one of the most worrying things about the the new ideology that is is spreading through our societies is their rehabilitation of racial thinking, their, their rehabilitation of the racial imagination. And, uh, you know, I, I did a, I actually did a talk on this in, in Sydney the last time I was there a few years ago. I did a talk on, you know, it, it, the reason I'm opposed to political correctness is not because I'm a right-wing reactionary who wants to go back to the old days when women were in the kitchen and men were out at work. It's nothing to do with that. It's because I see political correctness as actually undermining the progressive gains, the, the liberal gains, whatever word is accurate to use, that we had in the 1960s in that period, one of which was the idea that you should stop judging people by their race. You should stop judging people by the color of their skin and instead judge them by their character, their deeds, what they do, how they behave, what contributions they make. You know, that was the great idea of the 1960s and it had an extraordinary impact on people around the world. Um, but now it's been undone. And in fact, in my book, uh, Heretics Manifesto, I've got a chapter on uh, called White Shame, which looks at the rise of white self-hatred and the rise of Black Lives Matter as well. And basically, I argue that the, the Black Lives Matter movement is best seen not as a continuation of the civil rights movement, but as a, a, as a brutish subversion of the civil rights movement, a, an attack on the civil rights movement. And if you look at some of the ideas that are being pushed by the new racial ideologues, they will openly say uh, that it's, it's wrong to judge people by character rather than color. I mean, there are lists of microaggressions on, and I write about this in my book, there are some American universities that have lists of microaggressions, that is, bad things you shouldn't say, and they include things like, I don't see race, I only see the human race, and they include things like, I don't judge people by their racial identity, I judge them by who they are as a person. Those are now things you shouldn't say, because apparently it undermines someone's uh, a view of themselves as a cultural person, as a person with a particular racial heritage. You're undermining their sense of self by judging them as an individual rather than as a racial category. So that is a real attack on Martin Luther King's idea idea. And I make the point, Martin Luther King would probably be no platformed from many campuses today because of his insistence on judgment by character rather than by race. So the, the way in which those great positive ideas of the 60s have been completely undone and undermined, it really speaks to the creeping re-racialization of society and also just to a loss of faith in humanity. And this idea that in fact, what we need is a vast structure of race relations, which we're now seeing in workplaces, on university campuses, across society. We've got these new racial managers who see it as their job to suppress white privilege and to lift up black voices. So you have this infrastructure of racial management, which I just think is incredibly depressing, very anti-human and very illiberal, and a, an open attack on the vision of the, the people of the 1960s. So Australians uh, are beginning, going to go to a referendum uh, in the last quarter of this year, sometime from October onwards, to vote on an Aboriginal voice to Parliament. The idea that there should be a permanent uh, body that, that represents Aboriginal views to parliamentarians and executive government, by the way, it's quite widespread. And, and this should be locked into the constitution so it can never be changed. There, there are many 
questions and doubts and, 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 and concerns that I have about this and others do too. But there are two fundamental ones. Uh, one is this point about race, that one particular uh, uh, race of people, uh, it, albeit uh, you know, one that deserves special credit for having tamed this wild, wide brown land before any other, uh, but they're going to be given a special privileged position of an extra uh, voice to Parliament. Some people have called it a third chamber. It's not quite that, but it, it's getting along that track. Whereas there'll be no uh, Asian voice to Parliament or, you know, ageing pommy voice to Parliament, anything like none of that, just one, <laughs> which, which goes against the idea of citizenship, which is a thing that holds us together. The fact that we're all equal as Australian citizens and we have one higher loyalty to everything else and that's our loyalty to Australia. That, that I think is... I, is I couldn't agree more. Mm. And mm. yeah, the, the, I, I've been following this story as much as possible and it worries me enormously that I think the whole idea is, is wrong and it would undermine the idea of Australia, of modern Australia yeah. and of Australian exactly. citizenship, exactly. which, as you say, yeah. should be based on equality. And if Australia introduces a constitutional stipulation that one particular race should have a permanent voice in the political sphere, I do worry that that will undermine the whole modern Australian project of recent decades, which is citizenship and equality. And you are an Australian, you're not a race. You're an Australian, you're not a skin colour. That is what, that's an idea really worth holding on to. And anything which interferes with that, especially at a constitutional level, I think has to be vigorously opposed. Now, I don't doubt whatsoever that Aboriginal people and ab Aboriginal communities were mistreated in the past. Of course, they still have a huge economic problems and all of that should be addressed by Australian society and, and by Australian politicians. Of course it should. And if they feel that they are not equal members of Australian society for various reasons, that's a problem that needs to be addressed. But that is what needs to be looked at. How can you improve the genuine equality enjoyed by Aboriginal communities with the rest of Australian society? Society, not how can we bring them into the political sphere as a permanent voice on the basis of their racial heritage or their cultural heritage. That is a very dangerous idea. It, it, it counteracts entirely the modern idea that I think Western society should hold on to, which is that we don't care what colour you are. We don't care what sex you are. We don't care what sexuality you are. We just care that you are a member of this society and as a consequence you enjoy certain rights and then there are certain expectations of you as well. That's the idea worth holding on to and that idea of equality, the kind of race-blind, sex-blind equality of citizenship is under attack by the woke mob and it really needs to be resisted. Yeah, when you speak of improvement, I mean, that's what we hoped, that we would improve uh, the lives uh, and, and futures of those people. You know, there are probably about 10% of in Indigenous Australians who live in remote and rural communities where, as you know, conditions are terrible. There's, there's little prospect for kids growing up in those areas. We want to improve this. We want to bring reconciliation, which means that we look forward to the day when Indigenous Australian and Torres Strait Islanders, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians will be, have the same opportunities as the rest of us, will be able to become their best selves. We see a finishing point. Yeah. But that's the problem with it, putting the voice to Parliament in the Constitution, which is very hard to, to change for, for obvious reasons. 
you're implying that this gap will always be there, that they will always be yeah. disadvantaged people. What I mean, we're giving them no encouragement, are we? This is hardly an empowering thing to do. That absolutely not. And as you're, you're right, it ossifies that difference between some indigenous communities that have very serious problems that uh, Australian society should think about. It ossifies the difference between them and the rest of Australian society who who have better lives, who have uh, more economically comfortable lives. Um, and we shouldn't be ossifying or fixing that difference in politics in the constitution, we should be trying to tackle it and get rid of it so that people actually feel like genuine equal members of society and have the resources that they need and the opportunities that they deserve. That's what Australian society should devote itself to rather than this constitutional racism, which I think is what you will end up with. If, if racism means the differential judgment of people and the differential empowerment or disempowerment of people on the basis of their racial heritage, then, or their cultural heritage, then this is a, a racist idea, I'm afraid to say. And I, I do find it very worrying. I think the one thing that worries me about um, woke white people in certain parts of Australia, uh, you know, certain parts of Sydney and, and Melbourne in particular, where they will be painfully politically correct, largely white communities. I think they have a, a quite problematic attitude towards indigenous communities. They are quite paternalistic to them sometimes. Um, they go through lots of very ritualistic um, performances of, of respect for indigenous land and respect for indigenous people and so on without actually thinking about how indigenous communities lives could genuinely be improved especially as you say that percentage of them who still live in in very difficult rural conditions they don't think about that they just think about how they can basically signal their own virtue by demonstrating how loving and kind they feel towards certain indigenous indigenous ideas and indigenous people. It's, it's a relationship, I think, that often benefits rich white activists more than it does certain indigenous communities. So there's a problem there as well. And I think introducing this idea into the constitution would be a really dangerous step forward. It also would have the potential to create more racial tensions in society if people think that some racial groups are being elevated over others. As you say, what about an Asian voice? What about a Greek voice? What about an Irish voice? You know, Australia has lots of um, uh, communities from around the world, of course it does, many of whom were brought there in incredibly unjust circumstances on prison ships and so on. What about their voice? What about their historical pain? And I think we're seeing a, a similar development in the US where there's continuing discussions about reparations for African-Americans because not only because of slavery, but more recent injustices as well. And um, that's been proposed in San Francisco and huge numbers of ordinary San Franciscans, which is a very open uh, city, very progressive, very open-minded, they're opposed to it because they don't understand why uh, the government there would want to create so much tension that it would give um, take money from some taxpayers, including white people and Latinos who are hardly rich, and Asian Americans, of which there are a large number in San Francisco. It would take money from them and give it to another community. It's a very dangerous development, this racialization of society. And we really do have to go back to that post-race vision of equality and citizenship. One last question, and then I'd better let you get back to writing your next must-read column for Spiked, Brendan. But 
And, it, and it's just, it goes to the dynamics of the race, the, the voice debate. So you'd be familiar with this. Almost the entire mainstream media is in favour of the voice. They think that anybody who's not in favour is a racist. Uh, you've got, of course, uh, the government. You've got anybody within goes, is allowed within five kilometres of an ABC TV station believes this too. Uh, that, that the voice is a good thing, that every, any other option is racist. And you've got, as so often these days, multinational corporations arguing in favour of it. You get on a Qantas plane, you get a welcome to country and, you know, it goes on and on, right? Brexit. This seems to me so much like the dynamic of the Brexit debate. Yeah. Do you agree with that? And if so, what encouragement can we take from the result of the Brexit vote? Yeah, I, it definitely has echoes of the Brexit referendum of, of 2016 because um, obviously it's a, it's a very different question that has been put to the electorate in Australia. But I think probably the splits in Australian society, the kind of people who will line up to say yes and the kind of people who will line up to say no, I wouldn't be surprised if it was quite similar in terms of class and geographical distribution and maybe age and generation as the Brexit divide was as well. Because what happened during the Brexit referendum in 2016 is that the, the, virtually the entire establishment, apart from a few, a handful of voices, virtually the entire establishment lined up behind Remain. They said we must remain in the EU. Big business, corporations, celebrities, I mean, all, all of them. The, the, almost, the, I would say, 90% of the establishment lined up behind Remain. And then, of course, as we know, 52% of voters said, no, thanks, we want to leave. And, and we won that referendum. And we could only do that by holding our nerve in the face of establishment demonization. They said we were racist, we were xenophobic. If you want to leave the EU, you must hate foreigners, uh, even though our slogan at Spiked was um, for Europe against the EU. And we had a T-shirt saying we love Europe, we hate the EU, which is still a slogan I would stand by today. Um, yeah, we were leave voters were demonized. We were told that it would be a, an economic catastrophe catastrophe for the UK. We would see the re-emergence of 1930s-style fascism in, in Britain. We, it, it was referred to as Project Fear. They used fear and demonisation to try to make us vote in the correct way, i.e. to stay in the EU. And it was, and it was really incredible that the British electorate was able to withstand that politics of fear and to stick to their guns. I think it was one of the great moments in the history of British democracy that ordinary people, through using their own moral resources and their own community strength and by connecting with each other in communities, in workplaces and saying, no, let's stick with this. That was the democratic mechanism through which we resisted that demonization and went with what we thought was right. And I think it was right. And I think a similar dynamic is required in Australia with your referendum. I think a lot of people who are opposed to the idea of the voice in parliament are going to be called racist. They are going to be demonized. They're going to be written off as dinosaurs who have no place in modern society. And they really have to stand firm against that and say, no, morally and politically and in the name of equality, we think this is a bad thing to do and we're going to stand up against it. And so having that democratic resolve and that sense of solidarity within the people who are opposed to the voice is incredibly important. And it's through that process, through that democratic 
a sense of connection that um, uh, Australian society can be propelled forward and, and through which the idea of citizenship can gain real meaning. You can demonstrate what citizenship means by connecting with each other to oppose this constitutional idea. And I think that's probably a, a good way for some Australians to go. Well, that's just what we'd expect from a heretic like you, Brendan. A Heretic's Manifesto, your new book, <laughs> Essays on the Unsayable. And I see on the back cover, which I have here, you, you've got a, an endorsement from Rod Little, and he says, the best and funniest writer we have on the multiple insanities gripping the Western world. Coming from a very funny and incisive writer like Rod Little, that's praise indeed. Well done. I hope we can get you out here, Brendan, uh, to promote your book later in the year. And uh, great to talk to you again. Thanks a lot, Nick. And now to your say, my column in The Australian this week on the campaign to abolish Harmony Day drew a lot of attention. Green Senator Mirren Faraki is behind this proposal. She calls Harmony Day a superficial, self-congratulatory celebration of diversity that whitewashes this historic and ongoing racism in Australia. Faruqi claims that changing the name of the day to the International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination will send a strong message that Labor recognises the seriousness and pervasive scourge of racism in Australia and the urgent need to combat it. Well, there you go. Jack wrote, racism is just the latest trope the left uses to pursue their favourite solution revolution. For the left, the answer is always socialism, regardless of the question. The class war never had legs in a classless society like Australia. The race war is a better horse to back if you want revolution. John says, I nailed it, apparently. Uh, the more the more I get called an old white male, usually by young white, fem young white females, the more intolerant I get towards young mate fe females, he writes. Intolerance begats intolerance in both directions. Michael writes, fantastic piece. Thanks, Nick. Clear, insightful, irrefutable. I'm not going to argue with that. And so frustrating. The people who need to read this won't, and even if they did, would rationalise away their conflicted beliefs in the same self, in the name of self-righteous virtue. Yes, it's always the same, isn't it? They won't, uh, they won't be told. Pot writes, thank you, Nick Cater. I arrived here from Asia half a century ago as a skilled migrant when the white Australia policy was still on the books. My Anglo-Australian neighbours in Mount Kurungai couldn't do more to make us welcome. Yes, there was the occasional racist remark, but the children were welcomed to the local school and in a, in, in a gentler and more generous Australia, we found acceptance. Regrettably, this seems to have passed as we slavishly adopt an American obsession with skin colour and propose a voice that will forever divide us into perpetual oppressor and perpetual victim groups. Would that the clock could be turned back. John's, uh, that's from John's Pop. And uh, thank you, John's Pop, a lovely comment. Says, Mike, I have lived in Australia for all of my 70 years. It has not become a racist nation simply because a green politician labels it racist. I find it hypocritical of this politician to try to divide our people on the basis of race and set them against each other rather than promoting unity, especially when she would be aware that her own culture has seen so much global violence, intolerance and sectarianism. Employing race politics to drive away and to drive any agenda is 
in my mind, a very low act and worthy of condemnation. Roger C writes, well said, it seems that Australians are losing their objectivity and sense of proportion. We have one of the best countries on earth in which to live. People who think that absolute perfection is the only standard to live by will never be satisfied and will always be complainers and agitators. However, victimhood is seductive. It flatters the ego in unremarkable people and gives a sense of being special. It provides the reassurance of mutually admiring peer group. It transports you to the moral high ground and it whispers that the rest of society owes you a living. Miss Faruqi is welcome to the claustrophobic world of her own convictions, but it's strange that she chooses to remain here rather than migrate to the better, prejudice-free society that surely must exist somewhere else on the planet, or at least in her imagination. Yeah, I'm with you there on that. There is no better country on earth than Australia, in my view. Uh, says Robert, it's quite, it's really quite simple. Symbolism trumps reality with these people all the time. But let's never confuse the voice as symbolism. Between the indigenous elites and Albanese, the voice tends to change the character and economics of Australia forever and embed racialism of the worst kind. Angus writes, I married a black woman as my parents taught me to be colorblind. In 30 years here, she has experienced one minor racist insult. And I should say I have not been, and not, I should say not by a white Australian. I myself, my, I myself in my life have missed this rampant endemic racism so often spoken of. Perhaps I should go to Specsavers. Well, thank you for that, Angus. And thank you to all of you who've written in, emailed, text, uh, comments on my newspaper stories, however you want to get in touch. Love to hear from you. Keep your comments coming. Keep your comments coming. Email me at nick.cater at adh.tv. I'm taking a break next week, but this show will be back on April the 20th. In the meantime, why not catch up with some of the previous episodes you might have missed? You'll find them all on the website, adh.tv, or on the ADH app, which you can download for free from Apple or Google. That's all for this evening. Good night.